Hi folks, this is Alan Watts and we're cutting through the Matrix on the 18th of November 2010. As always, I tell the newcomers and that there's people coming in every night who are new, have never heard me before, and lots of them are young too, which is a good thing because you've got to carry on with the future and take this information forward, hopefully. So I advise them to go into cuttingthroughthematrix.com website, help yourself to the audios you'll see listed there, bookmark all the other sites I've got listed in case the big sites go down. And remember, too, you, apart from the audios, all those sites you see listed have transcripts of, uh, in English of many of the talks I've given. And if you want transcripts in other languages, go into alanwatchsentinel.eu. That's listed on the com site as well. And you can help yourself to transcripts for download and print up, and hopefully you'll pass them around to your friends. Or maybe even sit and have groups and, and discuss the topics and so on, and even add to it if you can. Uh, now remember, too, you're the audience who bring me to you. I don't ask for money from the advertisers. I get the offers, but I don't take them on. And that, that gives me more scope to see what I want to say. I've got more time to actually give a talk during a show rather than bring on guests and so on. Uh, the ads you hear on this show are paid by advertisers to RBN directly to pay for RBN's airtime to broadcast this show and to pay for their bills and their equipments, their staff uh, and board ops and so on. So it's up to you to help me with mine. You can do so by buying the books I have for sale at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. You can buy discs and so on as well. That's all I've got up there to sell. And uh, these are it's really jam-packed with information, even the discs too. It's real worthwhile getting. And you can pay for them from the U.S. to Canada by a personal check or by an international postal money order from the post office. Or you can use PayPal to order or donate and believe you me, donations are really appreciated. There's not enough donations coming in at all. Uh, but if you want to purchase, you can use PayPal too. Just send the appropriate uh, PayPal donation, followed by an email with your name, address, and uh, an order. I'll get it out to you as fast as I can. Uh, some people just send cash. And across the world, some still use Western Union. It's kind of expensive. Uh, MoneyGram is cheaper, and it's cheaper still to use MoneyGram and get a check rather than wired across the water. You can... You can post it off yourself to Canada, and that will save you a bit of money as well. Or, as I say, use PayPal to order by using the the donation as well. But believe you me, donations are appreciated because it costs a lot to keep all this going here. And this is it's not a job. It's not a job I can I walk into and the staff got everything set up for me, and I just read off the the screen uh, the stories of the day. I don't do I do this all myself. So uh, believe you me, it's more than uh, a vocation too. It's a necessity at this time of life because once this information is gone and people who are, are gone too, who've literally known what's been happening their, their entire lives, living through it, that's history, that's living history gone. All you're left with is authorized history, which is always bogus and it always gets changed for the times. So we're going through into this new way of living. I've watched the changes. I've watched it. I've understood it, even as I was going through it myself. 
and uh, I knew the big powers that are at work on society causing revolutions. Most revolutions, as I say, are social in context, and most are fairly bloodless, um, and they're meant to destroy the old to bring in the new. Not because they like people to be free and so on, they always use freedom to bring it in, but actually to bring in more control over people who are now dysfunctional. That's the key to it. That's why you bring in new societies, make dysfunctionality the key, and then you create massive social services which come in and take over all the chaos, the children, um, uh, social workers, uh, adoption homes, all of that kind of stuff. That's what you're living in today. This was a war, planned war, and people lived through it and didn't know what was happening. Back with more after these messages. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix and and talking about this long-term war plan that's gone on for an awful long time. And much of it was to do with Karl Marx a long time ago as well, because really uh, groups of people, even before Marx came along, were figuring out ways how to create a new kind of world which could be dominated by a small intellectual elite, basically. And they came up with the idea that they conned the public with something called Marxist communism. And it's still going today, by the way. And it's done an awful lot of damage, and it certainly has pretty well succeeded. The beauty of it is, too, is that uh, they make most folk who go through these revolutions actually like it because they always aim at the young. Now, it's easy enough to get the young and say to them, do what you want to do. And they take off with that notion, think there's no responsibility and have just have fun and so on, and away they go. And that's what happened, really, when they introduced uh, various kinds of liberation, as they called it, back in the 60s. And it's promoted from the top down. I've mentioned this many times uh, from television and from government-sponsored television like the BBC. And I actually wonder why would this big enclave of the, of the Etonians who ran the BBC be pushing uh, sexual promiscuity and drug-taking and so on, and aren't we naughty type of little shows that they kept putting on uh, with, with, with uh, guys who were pop stars falling off the chairs as they were getting interviewed and, and who, who couldn't even say a word or a sentence. They couldn't get it out of their mouths. And then the, the, uh, the host would just kind of laugh and snicker like it was all kind of naughty and fun, wasn't it? So that's how they introduced it into places like Britain. In the States, of course, they put more cash into it. They got the Hollywood crowd into it, the ones who really run the culture. And they got the music industry into it big time as well. And they did two in Britain too, but to a lesser extent. But uh, they really used it uh, in the U.S. with uh, open, uh, massive pushing of drugs and so on, which helps too to befuddle the wits, especially when you're into engaging in things which could have severe consequences down the road when it comes to sexual relations. But that's how they really they brought all of this in. Is it was all a big time for fun. We're into a new era. There's no responsibilities. And before, and remember too, they were also pushing what the, uh, these um, communes. Communes are a big, big part of it. And you have to go into the history of the communes in, in the USA. And it's amazing the tie-ins you get between the leaders of the communes to New York and certain organizations. Just fantastically amazing when you tie them together. Absolutely amazing. It really is. So 
this ties in with an article uh, it's in the paper today. They're always uh, they're always looking at statistics and. And I actually wonder about even statistics. Why certain studies that they do every five or ten years? Well, they do these studies on the same topics to see if the agenda is working. That's why it's done, you see. And this article here is from uh, the Associated Press. And it says, uh, is marriage becoming obsolete? I've seen these articles my whole life long as they tr- did their checks to see if, if their agenda was working. It says, as families gather for Thanksgiving this year, nearly one in three American children is living with a parent who is divorced, separated, or never married. More parents are accepting the view that wedding bells aren't needed to have a family. A study by Pew Research Center in association with Time magazine highlights rapidly changing notions of the American family. And the Census Bureau, too, is planning to incorporate broader definitions of family when measuring poverty a shift caused partly by recent jumps in unmarried couples living together. It says about 29% of children under 18 now live with a parent or parents who are unwed or no longer married, a five-fold increase from 1960, according to the Pew report being released Thursday. Broken down further, about 15% of parents who are divorced or separated and 14% who were never married. Within those two groups, a sizable chunk about 6% have parents who are live-in couples who opted to raise children together without getting married. Indeed, about 39% of Americans said marriage was becoming obsolete, and that sentiment that follows U.S. Census data released in September showed that marriages hit an all-time low of 52% of adults 18 and over. Uh, then they go into... Um, it says, uh, when it asks what constitutes a family, see, they're, they're redefining it all the time. As you well know, if you watch the comedy shows, that's how they always introduce the new things through comedy, which otherwise you, bit, you wouldn't get a laugh at, be too serious if it didn't. Uh, it says, when asked what constitutes a family, a vast majority of Americans agree that a married couple with or without children fits that description, but four or five surveyed pointed also to an unmarried opposite-sex couple with children or a single parent. Three out of five said a same-sex couple with children was a family because they watch TV a lot. Marriage is still very important in this country, but it doesn't dominate family life like it used to, said Andrew Chernan, professor of sociology and public policy at John Hopkins University. Very interesting that, you see, because sociologists and ethnologists and, and, and anthropologists all worked with the big boys to bring in the modern culture, and they're working heavily on this uh, from, I'd say, about the 1940s onwards to bring in like, this kind of society. Interesting how it's worked. And it says, The broadening views of family are expected to have an impact at Thanksgiving. About 9 in 10 Americans say they will share a Thanksgiving meal next week with family, sitting at a table with 12 people on average. But one-fourth of respondents said there will be 20 or more family members. And you know that it's worse for other countries in Europe, like Britain. It's just devastated, destroyed, because of the massive welfare states allowed, actually encouraged uh, women just to have children on their own without having men at all. And you don't even need a man to get into, get impregnated today. I've got all these clinics that will do it all for you. And then the rest of the society just picks up the tab and keeps them living in their homes. So this was all arranged. Then you go back to the Communist Manifesto. And on on this page here, it's page 100, it says here, one of the planks is abolition of the family. Even the most radical uh, flare-up at this infamous proposal of the Communists 
On what foundation is the present family, the bourgeois family based, the middle class are talking about? On capital, on private gain, in its completely developed form, this family exists only amongst the middle class, the bourgeoisie. But this state of things finds its complements in the practical absence of the family amongst the proletarians and in public prostitution. The bourgeois family will vanish as a matter of course when its complement vanishes, and both will vanish with the vanishing of capital. And technically it all happens. Uh, do you charge us with wanting to stop the exploitation of children by their parents? To this crime we plead guilty. But will you say we destroy the most hallowed of relations when we replace home education by social education? And your education, is it not also social and determined by social conditions under which you educate by the intervention of direct or indirect of society, by means of schools, etc.? Communists have not invented the intervention of society in education. They do but seek to alter the character of that intervention and to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class. It says the bourgeois claptrap about the family and education, about the hallowed correlation of parent and child, becomes all the more disgusting, the more by the action of modern industry. All family ties amongst the proletarians are torn asunder and their children transformed into simple articles of commerce and instruments of labor. Technically, that was true. I mean, you had a massive underclass working in factories going through the Industrial Revolution, and uh, they were living in squalor and, and utter poverty, and all the children had to go to work as well. But of course, they always use what is evident in the time to bring in their, their utopia, so the, the small clink uh, elite who are mainly related to each other can rule over the rest. He says, but you communists would introduce community of women. See, that's what they want. Plato, remember, community of women, all women held in common, all available. That's what you have when you promiscuity. They don't think of it that way, but that's what you actually have when you stand outside and see it. So he says, uh, we didn't introduce the community of women, screams the whole bourgeois in chorus. The bourgeois sees in his wife a mere instrument of production. He hears that the instruments of production are to be exploited in common and naturally can come to no other conclusion than the lot of being common to all will likewise fall to the women. He has not even a suspicion that the real point aimed at is to do away with the status of women as mere instruments of production. That's what I actually wonder about when you see the women in Russia with the picks and as they were digging up the roads, you know, helping the, the system. For the rest, nothing is more ridiculous than the virtuous indignation of our middle class at the community of women, which they pretend is to be openly officially established by the communists. The communists have no need to introduce com- uh, community of women. It has existed almost from time immemorial. It may have been in the lands that these, this guy actually came from and his, with his predecessors, who knows. But anyway, that's... Um, that's is, as I say, was part of their plank of the Communist Manifesto, destruction of the family unit. And, uh, and then they would have their planned society. Again, they also wanted to decide who would breed and who would not breed too, if they could bring it into full production that way, their whole um, plan and agenda. But as I say, in the West, they had to use a different tactic. And they tailor-made them slightly different from each other, from Britain to the U.S. and so on, according to the present cultures that they had. Now, remember, Carl Quigley was the historian uh, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and Carl Quigley was all for whatever they did. 
Now remember, the Council on Foreign Relations works with its, its daddy uh, uh, in Britain, which is the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Remember, it's the Royal Institute for International Affairs. If you're all thinking it's just like another communist organization, it's got a royal charter to exist. It's above government, you might say. And it says here in, in uh, Tragedy and Hope, on page 1263, it says... Um, Behind this protective barrier, uh, barrier, a new teenage culture has grown up. This is in the 60s he's talking about. Its chief characteristic is rejection of parental values and of middle-class culture. What a coincidence, eh? It's all coincidences we're reading here. In many ways, this new culture was like that of the African tribes. It tastes, it tastes in music and the dance. Its emphasis on sex play, its increasingly scanty clothing, its emphasis on group solidarity, the high value it puts on interpersonal relations, especially talking and social drinking, and drug taking, I should add to it. It's, it's almost total rejection of future preference and constant efforts to free itself. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix, just tying a few things together to show people that nothing happens by itself. Nothing in any major scale happens by itself. It takes coordination of various sciences. Uh, It it takes cooperation definitely of big academia. It takes cooperation between the entertainment industry and uh, popular television and so on, all to all work together to cause cultural changes in society. And uh, and we're influenced more by fiction than we are by anything else, believe it or not. Fiction really, uh, it's like monkey see, monkey do. Plato said the same thing about drama on the stage in ancient Greece. So it says here, here's Carl Quigley talking about, uh, and remember he was for this agenda, he worked for this agenda, and he was a professor himself, and he thought it was just swell that it seemed to be going to plan. And it, he's talking about how the children uh, suddenly, and it was a sudden thing, uh, how they rejected uh, uh, the old values suddenly, because it was a trendy thing to do, obviously. And they were copying the culture like that of the African tribes. Now I can remember reading about ways that c- the communists could possibly do this, and they were going into things like dance. And if they could break all the old traditional dances, which actually required you to hold the partner, no kidding, that's how it used to be. Amazing, eh? used to hold the person, since that was the whole point of it. And... Um, and then suddenly they're dancing apart, steering each other's knees. But so they brought that in very successfully, and, but they, they copied it from, from African dancing, basically. And they also used the beat as well to try and bring on the sexual stimulation of the African uh, tribal dances as well. And so they used, as I say, anthropologists big time in the culture industry at this particular period. Getting back to the book, though, it says here, uh, they started to put dressing um, in scantily, uh, scanty clothing, the heavy exercises on sex play, emphasis on group solidarity. We're all together. We're a different species from the, from the old species. Basically, that's what they thought, you know. And they're told by the communists in America, don't trust, trust anybody over 30. So don't listen to them, in fact, over 30. And then it says here, and the high value it puts on interpersonal relations, especially uh, talking and social drinking, it's almost total rejection of future preference and its constant efforts to free itself from the tyranny of time. 
they were always stones. They could never turn up for anything. Teenage solidarity and sociality, uh, and sociality, especially the solidarity of their groups and subgroups are amazingly African in attitudes as they gather at nightly or at least uh, on weekends to drink uh, cokes, uh, talk, uh, intermingle, inter- interminably in the midst of throbbing music, preferably in semi-darkness with couples drifting off for sex play in the corners as a kind of social diversion and a complete emancipation from time. Usually they have their own language. Uh, that was all given to them too. They didn't know that, of course. With vocabulary and constructions so strange that parents find them almost incomprehensible. This Africanization of American society is gradually spreading with the passing years to higher age levels in our culture and is having profound and damaging effects on the transfer of middle class values to the rising generation. A myriad um, of symbolic acts over the last 20 years have served to demonstrate the solidarity of teen culture and its rejection of middle class values. Many of these involve dress and dating customs, both major issues in the adolescent parental cold war. Interesting term, eh? Adolescent parental cold war. And it says, um, dating as part of the adolescent rebellion became less and less uh, formalized. The formal middle class dance of a generation ago arranged weeks ahead with a dance program became almost obsolete. Everything had to be totally casual or today's youth rejects it. By 1947, a dance program uh, listing the dances in numbered order with the girl's partner for each written down was obsolete. Going steady, which uh, meant dancing only with the boy who invited her, became established as it was a complete rejection of the middle class dance uh, um, whose purpose was to provide the girl with a maximum number of different partners in order to widen her acquaintance with matrimonial possibilities. Going steady, like much of adolescent culture of the jive era, was derived from the gangster circles of South Chicago. It wasn't in all the movies, eh? And was first um, introduced to middle-class knowledge through George Raff movies. That was gangster movies of the 1930s. It was satirized in a now-forgotten popular song of the 1920s called uh, I want to dance with the guy uh, what, what brung me. The guy what brung me. Yeah. By 1947, it was a way of life of much of adolescent America. As a consequence, teenage couples at high school dances sat out most of the evening in bored silence or chatted in a desultory fashion with friends of the same sex. The jive language of the period also had a South Chicago origin and has been traced back to a large extent to a saloon run by a certain local oracle called HIP early in the 20th century. Fortunately, going steady was only a brief, if drastic, challenge to potential attitudes and was soon replaced by tribal gregariousness and tolerant sexual broad-mindedness, which might be called clique-going since it evolved social solidarity, sometimes sexual promiscuity, within a small group, usually of ten or less. This became, to their adults, the teenage gang, which still strives uh, or thrives, but never in a very formal way in middle-class circles, as it does in lower-class ones. Two casualties of this process are sexual jealousy and sexual privacy, both of which have largely disappeared amongst many upper-middle-class young people. Now, that's what the communists said, too, the Dewey with jealousy and so on, and you'd have no steady partner. Back with more after this.
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix, just tying a few things together for folk who think that society just progresses, progresses by itself. Strange word that too, progress, isn't it? Uh, if you want to see progress, you've got to see the series, it's called, it's called the, um, the Legendary Sin Cities. Uh, it's a CBC three-part, I think, uh, series that came out showing you Berlin, Paris, and Shanghai, they were the sin capitals of the world, run by the same people, I might add. And, uh, and uh, it was through the 1920s into the 30s uh, that they really were going like crazy. They had all that I'm reading here tried out back there in those days. And, and of course, a war put an end to that. But a lot of them actually came over and got into the culture industry in the U.S. and immediately got to work there, too with the same dances on stage and everything, only they put flimsy clothing on instead of none at all on all their uh, very poverty-stricken dancers, these lovely communists. But anyway, back to this article here. And it said here, um, but the sexual promiscuity is from Tragedy and Hope from Carl Quigley. It says here, uh, this became to, to their adults, the teenage gang, which still thrives, but never in a very formal way in middle-class circles, as it does in lower-class ones. Two casualties of this, are, this process are sexual jealousy and sexual privacy. Both of them went out the window. Remember, they were trying to separate in communism the act of sex and the act of bonding. So there'd be no bonding. That's, that's worked very well to, to the present time now. It's, it's gone now. Most folk, uh, if you listen to youngsters talking, it's literally it's like a, uh, if you're thirsty, you, you go and drink. If you're horny, you go and you know what. It says, this become to this. So anyway, it says here, two casualties were, them, were those, uh, and including sexual privacy. They didn't care about privacy, both of which have largely disappeared among many upper middle class young people. And same sex group, or, uh, same groups at sex has become a purely physiological act, somewhat like eating or sleeping, and others, uh, sexual experience is restricted to loved ones, but since those youths love many persons or even love everyone, that's what they're told to do, uh, there is much less of a restriction than it might seem to a middle-class mind. Generally, a sharp distinction is made between loving someone which justifies sex and being in love with someone which justifies monogamous behavior. But there's widespread uh, tolerance and endless discussion of all these issues. This discussion, like most of the adolescents' endless talk, never reaches any decisions, but leaves the question open or decides that it is all depends on how you look at it. As part of such discussions, there is complete casual frankness as to who has had or is having sexual experiences with whom. Widely permeated with an existentialist outlook, and it all came from the universities, by the way, the adolescent society regards each sexual experience as an isolated, contextless act with no necessary cause or consequence except the momentary merging of two lonelinesses in an act of togetherness. So that's how it was viewed and it was, that's how it was pushed. And it's, here's a professor pushing it too in the same kind of terminology. He thought it was just working well because he was all for this, this brave new world that they were bringing in. And the Council on Foreign Relations, for which he was a historian, was behind a lot of this too. 
and so was the big foundation. The big foundations they help finance a lot of it too. And they also you'll find out from most of your big pop stars that came out at the time who they made them very famous were all from military industrial complex parents. Strangely enough, look into the Laurel Canyon and so on and, and just find out who they are. And here's an article here too. Uh, it's from a it's from a brief history of the future by uh, Jax Attali. Uh, he was praised by Henry Kissinger, of course, who was also on the same agenda to change the world. And on page 196, A Brief History of the Future, it says, the couple will no longer be the principal base of life and sexuality. They will prefer to choose in full transparency polygamous or polandrious loves. Men and women, all collectors, more interested in the hunt than the praise. They have turned the society into predators now. I've said that for years. The women and men, they're all preying on each other, accumulating and exhibiting their trophies, constantly on the move in search of distraction. Many of them will be the offspring of mobile families without a geographic or cultural base. They will be loyal only to themselves and will interest themselves more in their conquests, their wine cellars, their self-monitors, their art collections, and the planning of their erotic lives than in the future of their progeny to whom they will no longer bequeath either money or power. Because why? The state will be bringing them up. That's why, obviously. And you can really see why that's... Uh, this is all, all back to Karl Marx and before Karl Marx. This was planned. Believe me, there were people who decided hundreds and hundreds of years ago how to take down society into utter paganism. And if you can do that, because it had been done in ancient times, you see, then you can rule them very, very easily because you've destroyed everything that held them together, which made them fight you. And Atali also goes on in page 208. It says, from the very beginning, the human species has sought to distance itself from its own method of reproduction. To differentiate itself from the animal kingdom, it strove first to deny the productive function of sexuality, then to give it another meaning. In the ritual old order, most cosmogenies insist that not being born of a sexual relation is peculiar to the gods. The monotheistic religions in particular consider sexuality a constraint imposed on men by the forces of evil. The mercantile order, on the contrary, chooses to admit it while recognizing it as a function different from reproduction, pleasure. Reproduction thus remains in the mercantile order, as in previous orders, an animal constraint that psychiatry, starting at the close of the 19th century, aims to make tolerable. In the 20th century, the mercantile order sought to evacuate the reproductive role of sexuality by making motherhood artificial by using increasingly sophisticated methods, such as pills, premature labor, in vitro fertilization, surrogate mothers, and super empire for the, for the near future. It's actually here now. The mercantile order will even go so far as to dissociate reproduction and sexuality. Sexuality will be kingdom of pleasure, reproduction that of machines. Machines, just like uh, Brave New World, will basically bring you up. And uh, what I'm getting at tonight is nothing happens by chance. You see, an awful long war has been waged for centuries on nations. Sometimes uh, the same agenda had to be slightly changed to adapt to different cultures to to bring them all down. But bring them all down, they have certainly done all across the Western world. And 
Uh, it's like Yuri Bezmanov talked about in his talks. Now, he was a, a KGB defector to the West, and I might put his links up again tonight. It's well worth looking at uh, the series he put up there, where he talked about this cultural war, the takedown of the culture. And that's what he said. He says, most of our money in, in, in Russia does not go on war, as you think of what conventional warfare. Rather, it goes into uh, undermining the cultures of other countries. And he talked about America and Britain and other countries. And he said that when he came over, and many of them came over, they were so, so surprised to see how effective their plans had been when they saw the dysfunction around them and the incredible sexuality of everyone and the fact that the family was, was in an absolute mess and being destroyed and how, uh, as planned, uh, selected professors in, in academia have been promoting whole armies out into the streets generation by generation to further this particular cause of the destruction of everything that held you together as a people. Never mind the nation, you see, as a people, just like a tribe. And all your values were smashed, basically. And he, he, was, he said it had been so successful, even more, more successful than beyond their dreams back in Russia. And it's still going on today, folks. It hasn't stopped. And, of course, Hollywood is one of, his, one of your biggest, biggest players in all of this. All of it. But what he also said, interesting enough, too, Yuri Bezmenov, he said that once this has happened to the people, you can't change them. They've had it. Even if you're trying to wake them up for their own good, you cannot help them. They're now, and here's the term they use, which is a very apt description. He said that they're now contaminated. Con- their minds are contaminated. He said even if you showed them a prison camp and a, and a real gulag, they wouldn't believe you until the, an army boot hit them on the ass. That's how bad the indoctrination is, the, how free they are and how in charge of themselves they are, and how they're all doing the right thing. They're contaminated. To show you how the contamination was taken so seriously by those who understood it and created this ideology, when a lot of prisoners were brought back and freed from the the German um, camps and prison camps during World War II, uh, and freed to go back to Russia, Stalin had them all executed. Because he, he said they will have their, had their minds while in the camps contaminated with Western ideologies. And then had them all killed. Because they knew, you see, they knew that it really worked. It embeds in your mind. And you become the ideology. So a long, long war was waged. First against the church, of course. Primarily the Catholic church initially a 500-year war against it that tried to keep some values going even as they were getting perverted from within. And the Protestant churches, many of them were even used by communist organizations to further the communist agenda without even knowing it. There were willing fronts, willing fools, as they call them. It was quite amazing, 500-year war. And once you really went into the 20th century, the big boys took off those who knew the sciences and uh, they brought in, as I say, the Macy group 
and the, the Vienna Circle. They brought that, that group in too, the Vienna group, and the Frankfurters uh, group, the Frankfurt group, and worked together. And Bertrand Russell, the CFR, Royal Institute of International Affairs, all these people worked to bring in a new culture where they would destroy all the old, not to bring in what you thought of as a wonderful uh, Soviet paradise, but by using that technique to certainly achieve it, they, they were going to bring in a society which they would be defunct, useless, that they couldn't stand up together and fight any kind of tyranny, because you see a big tyranny is planned. A scientific socialism, but with a fascist face at the top. A tiered society with international corporations above the bureaucracy, the massive bureaucracy that will be running the lives of all those down below who are now dysfunctional and on welfare or minimum paying jobs. That's why it was done this way. Perfect. And even the Soviet system was only to last 70 years or so, according to Lenin himself. And then, of course, it was to emerge into a new system, not quite capitalist, not quite communist, they said. And then we have the Rees Commission that also went into the same area with the big foundations in America, Britain, France, elsewhere, fronting all the NGOs, pushing all what seemed to be left-wing doctrines, wanting more and more social work departments, child care departments, all that kind of stuff, single-parent homes for mums, rather than have normal homes built for uh, two people. They wanted single-parent homes. That was a mandate of Britain from the late 60s onwards, single-family homes, because they knew they were bringing in a welfare state. They were planning it that way. And it's all been accomplished. Now that people are completely defunct, they don't know a previous culture to go back to. They don't know how it was before. They don't have the, the ability to stay together to help each other in times of trouble. That's been destroyed. That's what got people through in previous ages. But it's quite fascinating to live through it, watch it being done, and watch the big players as they were doing it. And even the part with Tony Blair when he was in Britain too. And it came out in the paper and I read it from the guy who was the, the, his next in command for the, uh, for the prime ministership who worked with them, who was told by Blair to open the floodgates of immigration to destroy the last vestiges of British culture by bringing in the most diverse peoples. That was mainstream news. I read it on the air here. You think there isn't a war being going on? Do you benefit? You better start asking questions. Who's benefiting? Because we've seen an absolute horror effect across the Western world, just as devastating as any physical war. Any machine-made, bullet-ridden, bomb-ridden war. Just as devastating. And we don't value life anymore, too. There's more abortions than live births now. We think that's okay. We see fetuses being sold on the internet for body parts, stem cells, this, that, and the other. They have art galleries up as if dehumanized us and dehumanized us and dehumanized us, where they have bodies hanging on wires covered in plastic and they call it art, and we don't throw up. Dehumanization was an essential part of dominating and controlling 
and being the tyrant over any public. There's an article here, and it goes back to 2006. I remember, I think I even read it at the time, as they bring it step by step by step to, to further degradation. Women perform uh, uh, pole tricks during a, a pole people, uh, pole people are calling them a pole dance class. Uh, and this, this one here is from Canada and British Columbia. It says, the class is being offered by BC's Tantra, you know Tantra Yoga? Tantra, it all starts with yoga, right? Eh? Eh? Very innocent. BC's Tantra Fitness, one of the small but growing number of pole dancing studios quietly exerting their services to underage girls. It says a Canadian company which operates in Vancouver and Langley has taught students aged nine and up in regular classes and has gone young, as young as five years old, in private lessons. There's even a talk of introducing a mummy and me pole class. Oh, how quaint for the new family. Is that what they call the new clear family? Hmm. I just had a baby six months ago, and I'm hoping she'll start to learn pole dancing as soon as she can, says Tammy Morris, owner of Tantra Fitness. Children love the pole. If anything, it's hard to get them off. Because they're such naturals. You understand the terminology and the, the, the visualization. You've got the hard to get them off the pole. Morris, a former exotic dance champion. I wonder how you could be a former dance champion in exotic dance. So she's worked hard to separate the art of stripping from the art of pole dancing, with the focus of the latter being fitness and technique. It's all about fitness, you understand. She acknowledges that the activity is steeped in sexual history, but nonetheless thinks any moral panic around its instruction to young people is misplaced. Of course she is. She's making a killing off it. But I'll, I'll, I'll read more of this claptrap when I come back from this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix. Just uh, just finishing off with um, an article from Canada, of course. Canada loves to say it's so progressive. We've always uh, had prime ministers who've said we're so progressive and things. And uh, we're on the cutting edge, you might say, of progress. I've never had anyone define progress to me. It sounds like a plan. You must, you must know where you're going if you're progressing towards it, right? You must know where you're going. But anyway, there's a caller here, and it's Tom from Wisconsin. Are you there, Tom? Hello, Tom. Appreciate taking. Can you hear me? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. I appreciate you taking my call uh, as always, and um, I, I I wanted to say tonight that I, as I find my primal instincts again, my instincts to have a tribe and to maintain a tribe and to protect my tribe, um, I'm discovering more and more as as I move along in my days on this planet that that tribal instinct is completely devoid and, and is completely absent literally yeah. from most people like 90 90% of the people I talk to yeah. have no real understanding of the tribe and and what it what its function is and ultimately what they don't understand and I and I even say this I say well well you know do you want to in your old age be strapped in a gurney and left to die because 
that is what the state will do. The state yeah. doesn't care. The state is psychopathic. It's a yeah. corporation and a yeah. corporate. It's just like. So if you don't have, if you don't have relatives round about you and people who love you round about you, when you're dying and and it's up to the state, the state is going to euthanize you and just get you out the way as cheaply as possible. That's on the books, and that's what I'm saying. When you, when the tribal instinct, the family instinct, it starts with the family instinct, and then the real community instinct, where you all know the laws and the rules. You don't need cops, in fact. You used to have very little cops in most countries, and. Um, you all helped each other in times of stress and trouble because you all knew the rules. You all knew that one day you'd need help too. Uh, that's all been destroyed. And now the state is the god, exactly as they planned in the Fabian Society. They wrote about this agenda, and we're right there today where literally uh, they're discussing openly on, on BBC in Britain, lecture after lecture and discussion after discussion on euthanasia, uh, cost of keeping a person alive, should we just euthanize them? And, of course, if there's no family to stand up to defend you, you have had it. You're, that's you. Yeah. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, I completely agree. And, uh, like I was saying, it, it, it just as, as I'm discovering this in myself after spending the last three years heavily involved in, in the alternative version of the three-dimensional reality on the planet, uh, I, I'm, I'm just flabbergasted. And, and, and it takes... What I want to tell the listeners, too, is that it takes time to get people to even start to ask questions because at first they're not even interested because they're so busy with the false reality they're given. But after, after some time, after you've been explaining it in different ways and bringing up different issues and, and always feeding them the alternative to the false reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, unfortunately also, too, I think that in many cases you're right when you say that there is absolutely no chance of this thing turning around because so many people have been, as you said earlier in the show, been contaminated by the controllers. Yeah. And, and the memory, too. What you need, too, is, is a memory of how a working system did work. They don't even have the memory of that now. Nope. nope. Not anybody under 30 years old basically doesn't have a memory as to how it really worked when their grandparents were alive. Yes, and, and now today, one of the biggest problems is uh, it's older people. It's mainly women who've done it all, seen it all, they went for it all, and and now they're, they're, they're best friends or their therapists and, and so on, and the guys who give them the pills, and they're depressed and all the rest of it because they didn't have the life, they haven't passed on to children, and they're very, very lonely. And in other words, the agenda has been incredibly successful. But from Hamish myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your gods go with you. <laughs>